Joining us today, we have Gowri Prabhakar. Gowri is an assistant professor of practice with the Department of Earth Atmospheric and Planetary Sciences at Purdue, and she joined the department in 2019 in the fall. So welcome, Gowri. Hi, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time and joining us. It's uh, an unusual time right now, so everything being remote. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Stephen. It's actually a pleasure to see familiar faces. You can't go to the department in person. So this yes. is nice. That is one good part about being able with the technology we have today, being able to reach out to everyone and be able to see people a little more often than we would have. Yes. As an assistant professor of practice, what, what are some of the things that you do? I guess we can start there. Sure. So, I study um, the physical and chemical processes in the atmosphere that change concentrations of various uh, pollutants in the atmosphere. And so, I spent a majority of my time, 75% of my time, um, is teaching graduate and undergraduate students at the university. And the remaining time I use to do research in my field of uh, expertise. So what type of research are you doing? So it's a combination of uh, data analysis um, and some lab work, experimental work. So there's a, I have been a part of quite a few field campaigns where we go out um, to specific locations, collect data from there, uh, so as to sample what's in the air in those locations, bring them back to the lab, analyze those, and then look at what the data tells us about what pollutants there are. And then the other part is where we have some of these instruments that are in the lab, there's a lot of uh, calibration and a lot of uh, prepping of instruments that happens in the lab before you go out on the field. It's a it's a lot of field work and some lab work and um, a lot of desk work. A combination of everything, really, a little bit of everything. When we say think about field work, no one no one thinks about the desk work side, but there's always a lot of that, isn't it? Yes, um, before every, so for a, um, for a field work of, that lasts about a week or maybe two weeks, there's several months of preparation that goes into it where we uh, pre prepare our instruments, make sure they're working right, um, the data that it's giving is actually reasonable and makes sense, we can rely on it when you go on the field. And then there's always a lot of software and, you know, things like that, that you have to get used to and learn before you actually go out on the field, because field, you've maybe a week time to collect the data. And if something goes wrong, you should be able to immediately on the spot troubleshoot the instrument, see what's working wrong, what's not working, how do I fix this? And to be able to do that without losing much time on the field, you, there's a lot of prep that goes before that. And so there's a lot of not so um, exciting, adventurous work that goes before that one week of extremely fun field work. 
<laughs> so what type of data uh, being atmospheric setting the atmosphere what type of data would you be looking at and collecting so uh, my focus has been mostly on air quality so i look at pollutants um, gas phase pollutants as well as particles and so um, we have um, I, my field experiments have been huge collaborations in the past and some of my colleagues have instruments that measure gas phase, um, uh, that have gas phase observations like nitrogen dioxide, ozone, carbon monoxide, so um, various gaseous pollutants. And then we also have other instruments that are measuring particles. How many, uh, what are the number concentrations of these particles? Um, what sizes are they? Are they really big like dust or are they really fine that the human eye cannot see? Um, so what size ranges? What are the com chemical compositions of these particle, uh, particles? So there are filters that are brought back to the lab and analyzed to see what is the composition? Is there a lot of nitrate in it? Are there a lot of organic material in these particles? Is it just dust from um, soil that's coming up from tilling in agricultural sites, for example. So um, we measure all of these different um, types of, um, and then of course there's also meteorological parameters, you know, what was the humidity, what's the temperature like, because all of these factors impact pollutants and their concentrations. When you're in the field and gathering the samples, um, what do you run the samples there in the field or are you collecting samples and then bringing them back into the lab to, to analyze those? So we do both of those. So some instruments have the capability of giving us real time data. Um, however, some of the other uh, some, um, instruments don't have that capability. So we bring, for example, the filters on which the particles are collected on, um, they have to be brought back to the lab and then um, run through other instruments um, uh, like ion chromatography to get um, to analyze what the composition is. Okay. And so what um, finding out about the different um, attributes of the air itself, what is the end thing that you're trying to, I mean, is there a question behind that that you're trying to figure out? Well, why are you looking at, you know, air particles and nitrates and, and different uh, chemicals in the atmosphere? Right. So when we talk about pollution or air quality, we're often thinking about uh, gases and particles that are coming out of exhaust pipes from vehicles or from industries, right? But a lot of these gases and, and particles once they're injected into the atmosphere, uh, don't remain as they are. So they go through uh, several uh, physical and chemical processes in the atmosphere. For example, um, one common pollutant from vehicles is nitrogen dioxide, which is this brown colored gas. Once it's in the, in the atmosphere, it can be oxidized to form nitric acid and eventually ammonium nitrate particles which are, which are white in color. 
So the pollutants that we're injecting into the atmosphere don't remain in the same chemical or physical state that they have been. And they evolve. And um, the chemical pathways they take um, depend on um, the conditions which are meteorological factors like temperature, winds, relative humidity, um, as well as concentration of other pollutants. So what I'm trying to do along with a lot of my colleagues is trying to find out what some of these processes are, what do they depend on, how they depend on temperature, how does that processing vary from day to night? Um, because during the day, we have a lot of sunlight, a lot of ultraviolet radiation that um, can uh, dictate what chemical pathways are taken. So there are a lot of photochemical reactions. Whereas at nighttime, we don't have the sunlight so, um, and, and the sources of emissions are different. So they can take a very different, the same um, nitrogen dioxide can take a different chemical pathway. And so we are trying to find out what these different um, processes are and what factors dictate them so that we can try and understand what, what the concentrations of the pollutants would be. So if you want to be able to understand how much particulate nitrate we are measuring, we have to, able, we have to understand what process is leading to its formation. Put it simply. Oh. That's what I'm trying to find out. That but sounds that, like a lot of chemistry. <laughs> it is a lot of chemistry, but that's only one aspect of my research. The other aspect is where I actually uh, look at the influence of these pollutants on clouds. And that's oh. a combination of both chemistry and physics. And what do you mean by the influence on clouds? What type is it like the amount of clouds the, or other variables? So uh, when we inject pollutants, we um, are in, um, changing both the physical and chemical properties of clouds. So when we put out a lot of particles, for instance, um, we can make a cloud brighter by creating many smaller droplets of cloud. Um, so a cloud is essentially tiny droplets of water, right? So if we um, emit a lot of particles, we are essentially giving it a lot of surface area for that water vapor to condense on. We find and we form very tiny um, droplets. And so that makes a cloud look brighter and that's a physical property. At the same time, if we add a lot of uh, nitrogen dioxide that forms nitric acid, the rainwater itself can become very uh, acidic. So that was the acid rain problem we have from a lot of sulfur dioxide in the past. Um, so we can change both chemical and physical properties. And a lot of uh, that then ties in both to the local um, pollution, water and air pollution, but also to climate. Where are some places that the data that, you, that, that is interested in your data? So are, is your data, is it published? Are there places that, um, that look for the data that you're collecting? Yes, so um, a lot of my previous field campaigns have been aircraft campaigns. So we put our instruments on an aircraft and then fly through clouds 
and uh, over different regions. So yeah, it sounds uh, cool. Um, so uh, some of these were um, a big part of NASA. And so they were, uh, NASA's had several aircraft campaigns in the past, uh, not just the ones that I've looked at, but several more and in different regions of the US and even um, other parts of the world. And all of that is available on their website. Um, you know, it's all public, publicly funded projects. So all of that data is available. Um, some of the um, um, other data that I've looked at is over Eastern Pacific Ocean. And all of that has been published in scientific data, which is a, a nature uh, journal. Um, and I'm happy to share that if somebody was interested in using that data set to uh, show where the link is. But there are several um, uh, campaigns that were done over Eastern Pacific, and those campaigns were funded by the Naval Research Organization, so um, Office of Naval Research, ONR. Why were those locations chosen? Uh, so the off the do you mean the Eastern Pacific? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Eastern Pacific Ocean was chosen because it's this um, really neat setting where you have very busy ports um, in uh, California, and uh, there's uh, Central California off the coast of the Central California. There's always this um, uh, persistent deck of clouds that are called stratocumulus clouds. And so they provide the perfect meteorological and anthropogenic setting where you can study the influence of the emissions from ships on clouds. And so in the ocean, as, uh, you don't have quite as many factors as terrain and um, you know a lot of um, urban emissions, very specific sources of emission. And that is um, the, the ships. And then you have this huge steady deck of clouds with a lot of stability in the boundary layer below it, with not a lot of turbulence and a lot of you know storms brewing like uh, over in the Atlantic. And so it is uh, the Eastern Pacific provides this perfect setting for us to study how ship emissions are um, affecting clouds. In fact, that's a paper that I'm writing right now is to um, look at how ship tracks are formed in clouds. Oh, cool. Yes, yes. They're like the perfect um, natural lab setting. Uh, and if, in fact, if you go uh, and look at satellite data over the Eastern Pacific. There are other regions as well, but if you look at the Eastern Pacific, you can see these crisscross white lines um, over the ocean. Um, and those are all um, the signature that uh, of a ship, a marine vessel going below the clouds. Well, that, yeah, I didn't know what I'd ever thought about ships and clouds. I didn't think about the impact. That's you think about airplanes, but not ships. And so that's really neat. Yes, yes. There's no way, and uh, just because there's a deck of clouds, um, um, the ship is uh, not going to be unseen. 
and you can detect ships even if they're below a deck of flats. So <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's really cool. Now let's tra let's transition a little to uh, the other part of your job, which is the teaching side. And so, what all classes uh, are do you um, instruct here on campus? So I teach a graduate level and up um, upper undergrad level course on atmospheric chemistry, um, um, and I teach two other undergraduate courses. One is the Survey of Atmospheric Sciences, which is a 200 level course and a 360, um, I forget the course number. It's a, <laughs> it's a great issues course on um, science and climate. Uh, sorry, science and society. Um, so that is a course on um, climate change and how it's impacting the society. Um, it's, yes, and I'm in the process. Sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I'm in the process of designing another um, one credit course um, on atmospheric chemistry and the role it plays in climate change. Yes. One thing I like about being here, I, I'm sure lots of universities do, but one thing that I've always I thought was cool here that it's, I mean, you do the research and you're the one teaching it. And so that really is nice that. Uh, it's uh, you get to learn from someone who's actually uh, that does the research that helps participate in that. And so if, if I'm um, a high school student and I'm listening to this or junior high or whatever age, and I'm listening to this, I think, whoa, I totally want to take classes from her someday and learn more about atmospheric chemistry. And this would be really neat to, to research. What advice do you have for someone who's just thinking they might want to get into this later? Um, one thing is just to reach out to professors and talk to them, um, because as much as the students benefit from us, you've spoken to a few professors now, Stephen, you know, professors love to talk about whatever we do. <laughs> we love to talk about our subjects and we can go on and on and on about it. So, um, I would say just reach out to, uh, you know, you can email me and, uh, you know, I would be happy to talk about the subject, maybe give an initial um, reading material if necessary, um, or, you know, they could do a summer project with me. Um, I have a lot of data that um, I have access to, or I have looked at, and I can't um, spend as much time as I would like to, because I'm also teaching a lot of courses. So I'd be happy to have a student or anybody really take a look at some of that data and answer some questions that I have in mind and maybe, or maybe they have in mind and they want to look at. And so uh, that would be a good start, I would think, is um, just approaching somebody. For students who have never looked at a lot of data, what are some things that they could either do or learn to kind of practice looking at data initially to or or what and what sorts of ways would they, would you have them analyzing okay so i don't uh, use any special um, method of data processing that any of my colleagues don't use okay um, so just learning some basic statistical processing finding averages and looking at distributions 
um, or um, just uh, manipulating numbers in Excel would I think be a good start um, to just start playing around with numbers. The numbers don't have to necessarily be um, real somewhere. You know, it could just be any kind of data. It doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, um, gas concentrations, uh, you know, pollutant concentrations over West Lafayette. It can be any kind of data and they could practice and learn about statistics in general. And I think that would, it's good to focus on that um, at, at uh, initial stages, because then as you keep learning, you might, you know, find out you want, your interests have evolved and you want to do something else, but you still have this nice toolkit that you can use no matter what kind of research you're doing. Um, I came from, um, I initially come from a physics background. I did my master's in physics in India. And then I came into applied atmospheric, um, into applied science, which was atmospheric science. And my initial projects were a lot more physics-based than chemistry. But I had an undergraduate degree with a triple honors in physics, chemistry, and math. So all that came into handy when I started newer projects that have a lot more chemistry in them. So it does not matter, uh, you know, what you eventually want to do, just focusing on the basic sciences, basic techniques, basic statistics, basic math is great. Because then you can start applying it wherever you like. That, I love that advice, just that really solid foundation in the sciences and math, because you're right, then they are tools then that you can apply to really any question. Yes, um, just to add to that, for example, I, when I was an undergrad, I thought I um, would really enjoy astrophysics. Um, I still have a lot of uh, fascination to space, but I took a, a, a short summer course um, on astrophysics. And at the end of the course, I realized this is not what I'm interested in. Right? <laughs> but I still have the physics, chemistry, math background that I could then go on to, you know, learn more physics um, and more um, atomic molecular physics and then, you know, wind up my way to. But I think that's perfect. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, you, it's a perfect example to show that is it you don't know for sure what you're going to end up doing it's but you're you're getting more information and you try different things to see hey is this something that i i would like to you know spend a, a lot of years in and maybe devil in a little a lot harder and uh, finding every everything you try just gives you more success for the next thing and i like that i like that yeah Sometimes you find, you know, some students know exactly what they want to be studying, and that's great to have that kind of focus. But there's, you know, people like me <laughs> who don't know right away, or maybe they think they do, but they don't really. And, you know, you just find out by the process of elimination. Of course, you can't try everything out, but, um, you know, just focus on um, getting the basics right. So focus on the if, if STEM is your interest, then focus on physics, chemistry, math, maybe biology. That wasn't quite my thing, but yeah. Mine either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could 
not get bring myself to memorize those names. Me either. I had a roommate who was doing biology, and she was just constantly. That's all she was doing was memorizing, memorizing. I thought, oh, yeah. I couldn't do it either. <laughs> okay. I'm more hands-on. I have to. It's. I have to have some field work. I have to be out there doing things. That's that's, that's my personality. Yes, that's great. Actually, that's a lot of fun. It's intense. It's great. It's very rewarding too. Uh, well, thank you. We appreciate you taking time chatting with us. Sarah. Did you have another questions? I just. I. I going to ask. Yeah. So when you're out in the field, I just really quick want to go back. You said that you have to be ready to go. So you have all this prep work and everything mm -hmm. ready to go. Do you have um, any stories about um, kind of when maybe something didn't go the way you thought it would and you had to work right there in the field to get it back going? I didn't know if you had anything uh, that stood out in your mind. Field stories, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, when I, in, I think I was, um, very lucky where my instruments were working fine in the in the field, but I can share the experience of uh, my colleagues who you know who had trouble with their instrument, and so we had uh, about two weeks or three weeks, sorry, um, of field work um, in Monterey, and we had uh, a few instruments that had to go up our plane, and. My colleague had, who was from Caltech, the group had this huge instrument, which was it's called uh, an aerosol mass spectrometer, AMS. And um, it was new and it's not an easy to work with instrument. And they had been working on it up until the day the flight started. And even on the first day of flight, they, they still couldn't get it running and so, they just, they, they had a few sleepless nights. Eventually had to do a few flights without any AMS data. Uh, so we didn't know, so we were measuring particles, but we didn't know what the composition of these particles were. And that's usually how a lot of field work goes. And after a, a few sleepless nights, the group managed to get it running and and everything was great. And we had a few days of working through data, but that's also part of um, the challenge of working data from the field. Things don't perfect. There are gaps and you wish you had this and you wish you knew that, um, but you have, it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle with several pieces missing. <laughs> Um, so, there, I mean, to begin with, there's a lot that we don't understand. And even within what we thought we would have, there's like more missing piece, pieces. And you're trying to put all that together and then come up with uh, trying to find out what the true truth is, right? what actually is happening. And so that's part of, uh, part of the challenge of working with field data. And that is across um, disciplines doesn't matter what field you're in, what kind of data you're looking at. It's not going to look perfect, and which is why learning uh, math and some basic statistics is a, a great tool to have uh, when you're trying to interpret what the data is trying to tell us. I like that. I love that. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, anything else there? Yep. You done? Thank you. I thought she was going to put you on the spot for a minute there asking you the field stories. I'm like, uh-oh, this could go bad. I don't know. <laughs> it's like um, when I work with data from other field uh, campaigns, you know, field campaigns that I wasn't a part of, and it's like, I need this bit of data. What happened? Why did, why does, why did you guys not run that or run this? And then I hear more stories. Oh, by the way, this broke down or... Oh, by the way, this person had some sort of a personal emergency. They had to leave. Okay. So and that has happened in one of the other campaigns where I was a part of. Um, I, I, I had two weeks of campaign and then another student was going to take do the other two weeks. And she, um, the day I left, I'm on the train from Monterey to um, um, Cal, um, Tucson. Arizona, that is where I was a graduate student. And I thought, you know, oh, I'm done. I'm going to relax. I'm going to, you know, look at US 1 highway and, you know, uh, look at the coast. And my advisor calls me and say, by the way, your friend, um, your colleague had to leave the personal issue. How are you running this instrument? And so over the phone, I had to explain to him exactly what procedure we were following. <laughs> Ooh, that and, that, and that is with the you know with the poor connectivity that you get along you know uh, along the coastal <laughs> uh, in the train yeah. <laughs> that i could see it being stressful <laughs> yeah it was a little stressful for me and for my advisor it worked out yeah, yeah. well good <laughs> Well, thank you. We appreciate you taking time and chatting with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure chatting with you and Sarah. It's great. This is a good break. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad it's not a stressful break or something. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please hit the subscribe button so you'll continue to hear about new and exciting STEM-related work being done. Tweet us questions, suggestions, and requests at Purdue SOS or email us at k12science at purdue.edu. Until next time, be super, and remember, you are someone's hero. Boiler up! Hammer down!